0: So let's, uh, yeah, open up to Ecclesiastes 6, 10. I need to do it here. Let's see. After Proverbs, before Song of Solomon. We're not there. All right. So let's let's read the text, and then we will do a quick review, and then we'll really just try to pull out. We're not going to talk about everything this text says, um, but we're going to pull out two main things that it says. So, 6.10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bride corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick. In your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find him out, find out anything that will be after him. And in my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Well, Lord, we need your help to understand this word of uh, wisdom and to apply it to our hearts, so we ask that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, what are some of the big themes that we've been hitting in our book in Ecclesiastes? What are some of the big ideas that kind of keep popping up? Yeah? Uh, all, is vanity. all is vanity. And we this word vanity, we say, you know, it can mean a couple different things. It's translated vanity. It's translated what else? Hevel is the actual word in Hebrew. Good, good. What, what other ideas come along with vanity? Because we don't really use that word a whole lot in our normal language. Meaningless is one way that the NIV, I think, translates it. All is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Yeah, it's futile. It's actually used to describe smoke and vapor. Okay, Something that is like, it looks like you could grab hold of it, but you can't when you try. It's, it's not really substantial. So life is like smoke. It's like vapor. It's meaningless. There's vanity in it. A really important phrase we keep hitting is this phrase, under the sun, which helps us to see the perspective that we're looking at life in Ecclesiastes, is under the sun, which is life viewed apart from God's grace. So when we just look and observe life around us, it all looks meaningless if we don't take into account God's grace. And there's different points in the book where God is starting to be kind of woven in. And actually, as we go along from here, God is woven in a little bit more and a little bit more. And we're going to see that. And we've kind of ended each section with a, a, on an up note, right? How each section kind of ends with like, you know, I've discovered that you, you work hard and you eat the food you've been given. And this is God's gift to man and, and ideas like that. And we're going to have another kind of ending on an up note today, okay? So there's a ton of stuff in here. So what I want to do is I want to kind of point out like a big question and then uh, three answers to that question, okay? So let's look back at verse 10. And he says, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So when it says that everything's already been named, it just means that everything already has a stamp of authority on top of it. And that stamp of authority is from who? God, okay? So God is the one who has determined everything that has happened in your past. Would you agree? God is the one who has determined everything that happened in your past. And it says, man cannot argue with one who's stronger than him. In other words, you can't argue with God to get him to change what's happened to you in the past. You can't set up like a perfect argument that says, God, you wronged me. This is not what I deserve. You messed up and I want you to fix it. It says, the more words, the more vanity The more you argue with God, the more meaningless your argument is. So don't argue with God about the things that have already happened to you. And then he goes on to say, For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life? And I think this is the question that's being posed to us here. So knowing that you can't change what's happened to you, what's good? What is good for you to do in life knowing that God is actually the one who's in control of all of your life. And then he takes his eyes off of the past and he looks into the future and he says, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So not only can you not determine your past, you can't determine your future either. God set up what has happened to you. God set up which family you were born in. God set up whether you were a man or or a woman. He set up how tall you are. God set up whether or not you were put up for adoption or whether you were uh, raised by your own parents or whether your mom died while you were young, whether you were very gifted in music or not gifted at all in sports. God set that all up. You can't change it. And looking forward, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't say, here's exactly how my life is going to go moving forward. God's the one who's in control of that too. So what is good for you to do? What is better is the word we're going to hear a lot. So let's look in the next four verses, 7, 1 through 4, and we're going to go and do a little bit more of a a dialogue here. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and I want us to ask the question, what is it saying is a better way to live in verses 1 through 4? Okay, so he says a good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Observations. What do we see the author saying here? What's, what's his kind of big idea as to what is a better way to live knowing that God's in charge of the past and in charge of the future? Anything you see popping up there, you're going to have to be looking at the Bible probably if you're looking for something. Which means you'll have to open the Bible. Which means you'll probably need to have not a New Testament Bible because that's just not going to help you a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. It's open. What's kind of the common theme that's popping up here? Elise? Just that, um, like, I would say, like, kind of more sober. It's like not, it's not happy. It's more of like, I don't know, it's, it's saying that, you know, it's better than, to be mourning than to be, like, happy, and then um, and then to be sad and laughter. So it's kind of more of a sober side tone. Yes, there's definitely a soberness, a sadness. Yep. Where specifically is he saying it's a good place to be? Where's a good place for you to be? Where is it better for you to be? A house of mourning, okay? And what do you think that's referring to? Where do people gather to mourn usually? Okay, maybe a cemetery where there's death, a funeral. Yeah, I think this is referring to a funeral. Okay, a house of mourning, a place where someone has died. It is better for you to go to a funeral than for you to go to, what's the opposite? The house of feasting. It's better for you to go to a funeral than to go to prom, is what he's saying. It's better for you to go to a funeral than to go to your class Christmas party, your end of the year swim party, or whatever it is. He says, by sadness, what happens? Sadness of face, by, for, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Interesting. And what do you find in the house of mourning? You find in verse 4, you find the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So if we were to kind of summarize what's being said here, and this is just the first thing I want to camp out on, it's this idea that it's better for you to be around death and sadness than it is for you to be around laughter and parties. It's better for you to be around death and sadness than laughter and parties. Why? Well, let's see here. Elijah, tell me what the end of verse two says. Or no. Um we're starting with four. The heart of the lies is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of morning. It is better for a man to hear the view of the lies than to hear the song of fools. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Did I say four? Yeah. My bad. Two. I'll go back to two. Okay, so this is the end of all mankind. So why is it better to be in the house of mourning? What is he saying here? That's where we're all going to. That's where we're all going to end up, right? It's better for you to go to a funeral for this is the end of all mankind. You are going to die. So it's better for you to go to a funeral and come face to face with the fact that you're going to go to a, that you're going to die than to go to prom. Because you're going to be a really horrible prom date if all you're thinking about is the day you're going to die on the night of prom. What, what do we tend to think about on the night of prom or homecoming or our class Christmas party? What, what sort of things are on our minds on those nights? Accomplishment, liveliness. Liveliness. In the future, like, since, since maybe your prom, like, another year has, like, gone. Yeah. Exciting kinda of like live while you're long young, like this is like I've been waiting for this. How do I look? Am I gonna trip on my high heels going onto the dance floor? Is he gonna kiss me? Are we gonna meet under the mistletoe? Are we getting married? Are we getting married? <laughs> is this the beginning of the fairy tale? <laughs> Yeah. So, so when you're on the the kind of party feasting track, you know, like don't burp during the meal. What should I order so that I can like really get down at the dance and not like have stomach ache? No, no one's thinking that. <laughs> Especially the guys are you know, like. Yeah, this is really yeah. So. Those are the types of things that are on your mind when you're getting ready to party, right? Is it bad to think about those things? No. It's not bad to think about those things, right? It's not bad to think about those things. And yet, Ecclesiastes is telling us something better, right? That's the word that he's using. There's something better for you than going to parties, and that is going to funerals. And that is so that you can think about where your life is headed. What do we tend to think about at funerals? What was the last funeral you went to? Anyone? What was the last time you were at a funeral? Jack Coda. Yeah, so Jack Coda was pretty recently. And at South, a football player died recently, right? Did you get to go to his funeral? Yeah, it was Friday night. Friday night, okay. All right, died of cancer. So funerals, they happen. What do we think about when we're at funerals? think about the person who died, and what, what do you tend to call to mind as you think about them? Memories you've had with them? Yeah, memories that you've had with them. How they lived their life, right? Living a good life. I mean, there's a lot of people who die who are bad people, and we still find a lot of good things to say about them, don't we? Mm-hmm. Generally, the theme is how'd they live, and, and what, what was good about the way they lived? I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral of someone who, who died and really did not live a very good life at all, and you watch people get up, and the things that they talk about about how good of a life they lived are kind of meaningless and, and petty, and, you know, oh, he was such a Cubs fan. I remember when we all went to the Cubs game, and we just got so drunk, and these are the – you've been to a funeral, like these are the stories you hear, and those were the good days when we were all drunk together during college, and he used to do this and that, and that should cause you to reflect on life a little bit. What are they going to say at my funeral? Do they have good things to, to say about me? Is that, is that the best someone's going to be able to come up with is the parties that we went to? How I was the wild and crazy one? So funerals cause us to reflect on the end of our life and the fact that it is coming to an end. And so for that purpose they lead to wisdom. Because the one thing that's sure in a world where God has ordained your past and controls your future is death. That you are going to die. That there's going to be a funeral for you. And what is going to be said and how are people going to talk about you at your funeral? So wisdom is found in a funeral more than it is in a party. So teach us, Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to remember that the number of our days has an end. That there is a number to your days. And that every breath you take and every you know, time you come to church is just one closer, checking off the list, to the last time you come to church and the last breath that you take. That your days are numbered. So... Teach us to number our days because that leads to what? That leads to wisdom. It leads to living a wise life. And one of the books that I like to give to our graduates is called um, Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. And he's very direct in it. And one of the things he does right off the bat is he says death and judgment are waiting for young men. Eve isn't as it waits for others. And they nearly all seem to forget it. Young men... Are idiots. And I love you guys. (laughs) And I was definitely an idiot. (laughs) And young women are too. Because we don't think about the end of our life. We think we're going to live forever. We think old people die. We don't think that the things that we say or do in grade school or Uh, Element or middle school or high school really are going to change the course of our life. We especially don't think that someone may have to stand up at our funeral and conjure up the good things that we did with our life when we're only 16 years old and we were hit by a drunk driver. But it would make us wise if we did. It would make us wise if we started thinking about death. And coming out of times of mourning and sadness and, and funerals, it says makes our heart glad. Why? Because we get wisdom from those times. And ultimately, wisdom leads to joy. Having wisdom helps you to live a joyful life. So the encouragement here is for us to live a wise life and to do that by just thinking often about the reality of death and sadness and um, not being worried if someone's going to come up to you and say, why you mad, bro? You... Don't look like you're, why can't you just get along with everybody else and like be happy and goofy all the time? And realize that there's actually a lot of wisdom to not be in the class clown and always giggling and laughing about uh, stuff and slapping each other on the back. And that's where he goes next with this whole idea that it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. I mean, you guys had those giggle sessions with your friends before? I just giggle, 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 giggle. I can't. Everyone's laughing about nothing. I don't know. Maybe it's really late at night, or maybe there's some profane topic that's gotten you giggling, and you know everyone's taking it a step further and next further. Sometimes just laughing their heads off about it. That laughter is a whole lot of like thorns under a pot, because it makes the same sound: crickle, crackle, crackle, crackle. <laughs> and it doesn't last very long, and it doesn't do much good thorns they burn up fast they flare up big fire and then they turn dust and they're gone they don't heat up food very well they don't make you warm that's what a nice big log is for and that's what giggle sessions do you know you remember that one time you almost threw up and had orange juice coming out of your nose because your friend said something you guys were all laughing so hard at the end of the day did it make you much wiser no not really So what makes you wiser is being around people who tell you the truth and hit you with the truth in a way that says they rebuke you. They rebuke you with wisdom, which means it's sharp. It's hard to hear. It's far better to get a rebuke from someone who's wise and be told you need to straighten up and get your life cleaned up and start living this way than it is to laugh your heads off until you almost are up. Just general wisdom that's being applied here. Well, let's jump down to verse 13. The best way to live. So we've heard a couple of ways that are better. Let's look at the best way to live. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So consider the work of God, guys. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Has God made your life crooked? He has. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that God has introduced evil and he's done he's wronged you? No. Is your life hard? Is there things that don't go the way that you wish? You know, ski the old rapper, I wish I was a ba- little bit taller, wish I was a baller, wish I had a girl who looked good and I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a 6'4 Impala. Oh, gotta rhyme those "her" and ahs. You, you live life wishing things would be different, right? But they aren't. You aren't a little bit taller. You don't have that girl. You don't have that car. Life is a little bit crooked. God lets each of our lives be a little bit crooked, doesn't he? No one's life is like, man, it's just been I've been on the freeway of life and everything, everything I want I get and everything's just clicking and I'm exactly who, you know, I want to be and no. God has made life crooked and the question for us is who can make it straight and what do you think the answer is? Not you. <laughs> right? Because you don't know what's coming next. Only God knows what's coming next. You can't say, well, it's been a little bit crooked in the past, but from here on out, I choose how my life goes. I take destiny, you know, in my hands, and I am not, no one's going to wrong me. I'm going to do it my way. There's a song coming on. Do it my way. I'm going to do it how I want. Everything's going to go good from here on out. Have you guys ever heard people talk like that? talk like that. Reality is, you don't know that. I I like to watch HGTV sometimes and I watched a one in Hawaii where they make, you know, their own perfect tiny house and it ends with these people and they're like, "We've reached the ideal. We have a tiny house. We live barefoot. We grow our own food. Thank you universe." is how they end. I'm like, What happens when the tsunami comes? (laughs) Thank you, universe. It doesn't really, dang it, whoops, okay. So we don't, it's not just smooth sailing because you got your perfect little tiny house made. Which, by the way, two months into that tiny house, they had two kids, they are not going to be happy. with (laughs) Just total pipe dream, that's my opinion. So life is crooked, and God has made it that way, and we can't change it. And that's the point. The point is we need to realize that we can't change how crooked or straight our life is. So what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, he goes on to give this really weird thing about righteousness and wickedness. Verse 16. So, you know, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So the question is: Is he really telling us not to be righteous? Doesn't that kind of go against what the Bible says? Is he is he really telling us? that we should be a little bit wicked sometimes? Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is he's saying there's two possible responses that we might have to this realization that God's in charge of everything and we can't change it, that life is crooked and we can't straighten it, and you might go one of two directions and I want to warn you about those two directions. The first direction is to be overly righteous, and that's to say, I'm going to give God no excuse for making my life crooked. I am going to, I mean, I am going to memorize the heck out of those Awana verses. I am going to be at my perfect church attendance. I am going to be the perfect student. I am going to be the perfect son. I'm going to be the perfect daughter. I'm not going to kiss anyone before, you know, my wedding day. I'm going to, I'm going to just like, these are the things I'm going to line up and I am going to knock righteousness out of the park so that God is going to have no choice but to straighten out my life and make it just bliss from here on out. He says, don't go that route because you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy yourself trying to be righteous. And really, are you pursuing righteousness? You're pursuing works righteousness. You're not pursuing real righteousness. You're, In fact, you're trying to get God in your debt to owe you something. Does God owe you something? I think the... Scales are tipped a little bit the other way, right? Don't we owe him a little bit more than he owes us? But second, you might go in the route of, heck, can't do anything about it. Can't change who God made me to be. He's the one who made me this way. Can't change what's going to happen down the road, so I'm just going to live for me now. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to kiss that girl. I, don't, I read Kiss Dating Goodbye. I read, you know, like something about not kissing before marriage. I don't care. just going to go for it. I'm going to live for me now and do whatever I want. He says, nope, don't go that route either. Don't go the route of becoming overly wicked because um, what's that going to do? Cause you to die before your time? Death? Judgment? That's what waits for the wicked. So what's the middle road? How do we live the best life possible knowing that God is the one who has made our past, as crooked as it might be, that God is the one who determines the future, how do we live a wise life? Well, we keep in mind the fact that our death is coming, that our days are numbered, and we do what the last sentence here says, which is the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. We fear God. We learn to say, you know what, God, you are the one who made my life the way it is. You're the one who's going to determine what's happened in my life, and I trust you and I'm going to follow you where you lead me. And we have a perfect example in that. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he stood before great crookedness, great injustice, great wickedness that was about to be worked upon him by wicked people with wicked intentions. And so he said to God, out of fear of God, If this cup can be taken from me, please take it away. If if this wickedness and this crooked cup that you have placed in front of me can be taken away, God, please take it away. But, how does he finish his prayer? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus feared God. He recognized he lived in a crooked time with a crooked path ahead of him. And he accepted it out of fear for God and trust that God could bring about good in the midst of the crookedness and the evil. And that's what we have to do too. And we have to do it starting today because tomorrow isn't guaranteed, nor is next week or next month. So I think that's what our passage has for us today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need you to drive this into our hearts. The prospect of sitting with those who mourn, of contemplating death, of attending funerals, does not excite us. It does not cause our hearts to leap for joy or to uh, eagerly uh, set our clocks or um, anticipate the day that those come. And yet you say they lead to wisdom. So teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may live in wisdom. I pray especially for these students here, uh, as hard as that is as middle school and high school students, that you would teach them to consider the day of their death and to live accordingly. That knowing that their days are numbered would help them to live boldly and faithfully for you in hostile environments of their schools and maybe their families and their neighborhoods. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to fear your name. And when you allow crookedness to come into our life rather than trying to make you owe us and change it or indulging ourselves in the midst of it, that we would fear you and choose to trust you and choose to follow the example of Jesus Christ our Lord and say, Lord, if you can take this away from me, but Lord, if it's not your will, your will be done, not mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.